Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. It's so good to celebrate what God has done. I feel like 2019 has been such a foundational year for our church. It's been a really big year. We have done so much this year. Maybe you've only joined us recently, but if you are new, uh, we've done heaps. We've actually changed the name of this church. You might have just discovered that right then. We used to be called uh, Activate Church. We changed our name to Bright Church. We added an extra service. So we only had one morning service, but we were jam-packed. So we decided that we were going to add another service. So now we have our 9, 11 and 6 p.m. And it's great because God is just continuing to build this church. And uh, and I can tell you right now, uh, we absolutely could not go back to two services. And uh, and God has just grown us. He's building us. We themed the year Be Bold. And uh, this year has been about people stepping out in faith to do everything that God has called, gifted and graced them to do without being afraid or intimidated by anything that's around them. How many of you know that it's, you know, we just got to be bold, you know, when God calls us to do something, we need to be bold in our faith and what we say. And so this year has been all about that. We added a Kingdom Builders Fund, which I think is going to be a total game changer. I'm going to talk to you more about that next year and how that's really going to impact the future of our church moving forwards. And we also started something called the Change Your World Campaign, which is an outreach that we do to help the community that's around us. And so God has done so many things in our church this year. And I'm telling you right now, I feel like a lot of the things that he's done is actually a setup for what God is going to do. And so um, I'm just excited about, about everything that God's got in store for us. This year, uh, we gave the church uh, fresh vision. Uh, we're so clear on who we believe God's called us to be. And also, uh, we're, we're really clear and we've, we've had this mission for a long time, but we're clear in our mission. If you don't know what it is or you've come to church recently, our church, the way that we like to say our mission is, is like this. We will do anything short of sin to see people saved, free, equipped and sent in Jesus' name. And so we are willing to do whatever it takes because we just think that the gospel is such a great message that it is worth communicating and we'll do anything that we can to help people become who God has called, gifted and created them to be. And so in 2020, we're going into this next year with so much clarity. And, and in case you don't know what Vision Sunday it's about, is about, uh, it, it's about casting vision. Who knew? But the other thing is we like to talk into, at this time of the year, I like to look into next year and say, what is God setting us up for? What is God calling us to do? And I'm looking forward to telling you all about that. Before I even do that, I can tell you right now that we celebrated our volunteer appreciation night, as you saw uh, on the screens during news. And let me tell you this, we are just uh, have so many amazing people at Bright Church that serve uh, and give their time, talents and treasure to enable us to do something that we could never do if we was just trying to do it on our own. I can tell you, I cannot do everything on my own. Everybody already knows that. And so I'm wondering before I even do anything, can we put our hands together for all of our teams, all of our volunteers, everyone across Bright Church that just does an absolutely amazing job. We love you. You're so valued. We really thank you. And that's why we do our van, but thank you so much. Well, I want to, I want to, um, begin to speak into this important theme that God is setting us up for next year. And I want to begin with God because to be honest, it all begins with God. 
Everything that we do is all about God. It's all about Him. I want to do a little quick history lesson for anybody that is, you know, new to church. I don't know who's sitting in front of me today, and I don't know if you know everything about the Bible, if you perhaps know nothing about the Bible. But what I want to do is give you a little uh, brief overview of the history of this message that we're so passionate about. So the Bible says that in the beginning, God created. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have a creative God. And so when you and I create, we create out of the things that we see. We see things that inspire us. A lot of the things that inspire us are the things that God has created. But when God created, He did something completely different. In fact, uh, if, if you read what theologians would say about this, they would say that He created ex nihilo, which means that He created out of nothing. There was nothing, and then out of that, God created something. And so to, in order to create anything, how many of you know that you've got to have vision? How many of you would understand tonight that you've got to see something before, the, you, before you can create something? And so in the beginning, God saw something that He wanted to build, that He wanted to create. And it says that He created the heavens and the earth. And when, I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I, you know, see that or, or read that, I always think to myself, right, how did God live before He created the heavens? Have you ever imagined that? Like, what was the environment that God lived in before He created the heavens? And the truth is, is that God didn't need the heavens to exist. He is His own environment. He is 100% self-sufficient, but He saw more and He began to create it. So He created the heavens and He created the earth. And so He created mountains and He created rivers and He created oceans and everything that you've ever seen was at one point created by God. It was, everything was spiritual and at some point it became material and He just made things. I, I think that we serve an amazing God. So the, the only thing that I feel like God never made, He made everything, but the one thing He never made was spiders. They are the spawn of Satan. I don't know if you know this, right? But they are creatures. They have eight legs. Why do they need eight legs? You know, why do they need eight eyes? You know, so apart from spiders that came from the pits, the very pits of hell, everything else, you know, God created. And at the pinnacle of His creation, He created people. Maybe you're new to church and you don't understand this. You feel like God looks down on people and he, and he has a problem with it. He, he doesn't like them. No, no, no. If you read what the Scriptures say, it says that people were the pinnacle of His creation. And so he created people. And if you know the story, the first two people that he created was Adam and Eve. And he told them a whole heap of things that they could do, but they had one job, one thing that they weren't allowed to do, which was to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, if you know the story, that is the one thing that they did. And the moment that they did, they caused separation between themselves and God. If you're new to church and you don't understand how this works, if you have sin in your life, it creates separation between you and God. The good news is that God has done everything. Every decision He makes is always to benefit His people. And everything that God has ever done is to close that gap, is to, to close the gap and, and that distance between us and Him. And there would be nothing more notable about closing this gap in the Bible than the message that we like to talk about at church, which is the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel, it's simply this 
that because we had this problem called sin and we couldn't get ourselves out of it, we couldn't solve this problem on our own. God stepped in to solve this problem for us. So the Bible says that Jesus became flesh and He dwelt amongst us. And so He lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. And then He died the death that we were supposed to die. He died in our place. And the Bible says that if you believe that Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins, that you won't have to pay the penalty because by faith, you've already believed that He has done it. This is God good news. This is why I believe the gospel is the most uplifting and encouraging message that the world could ever hear. We should be so ready to share this incredibly positive and encouraging news with everyone that uh, that is around us in in our worlds. Well, so if you know the story, Jesus died and He was buried and He resurrected. He came back to life. And then after He did, before He ascended to His Father in heaven, He spoke to some of His disciples and He said something very important to them. And I want to read it to you. It comes out of Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 to 28. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Saying to his followers, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I've got to tell you, that is a great commission to God's people, isn't it? And so in many ways, what Jesus really did as He died, was buried and resurrected and then gave that commission, what He did there is He became a pioneer of our faith. The word pioneer, it means to be among the first people or among the first people that are credited with breaking new ground or new territory. And so in many ways, Jesus is the pioneer of the Christian faith because He did something first. And the cool part about this is that what happened to Him will happen to you. That's what baptism is all about. It's an act of identification with Jesus' death, His burial and His resurrection. So if you have faith in Jesus, the idea is, is that what happened to Him when He was resurrected will also happen to you. So He led the way for humanity to follow. And I don't know if you know this, but in Acts chapter 5, it says that Jesus was our Saviour, but it also says that He was our leader. Did you know that? That it actually uses the word to say Jesus is our leader. It's only the the only place you'll find it there in the Bible. But they've only translated it that way, because if you look at the original language in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it says that He was the author. What does that mean? It was that He was the one that wrote this story called the gospel and He did it with His own life. He is the author of our faith. He is the founder of our faith. He is the leader of this faith and we continue to follow Him. Now, after uh, giving that great commission uh, to His people, He did something very important, which is that He commissioned the church. Now, you should know that the church, the word church, uh, it's not a man-made concept or idea. There wasn't a group of people that were sitting around one day and said, hey, do you want to kill some time? Let's start this thing that we call church. No, 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 no. No, the church is actually God's idea. And so He commissioned the church. Let me tell you what the church is not. The church is not some religious 
organization that comes up with rules to stop people from having fun. That is not what the church is about. No, the church is always meant to be a mission movement, a missionally focused movement that continues to change the world. Amen? Because that's what the spread of the gospel does. It begins to change the world. Now, how many of you know that to do what Jesus asked would be so impossible? Really, honestly, wouldn't it? You know, if you look at how the Bible explains the Great Commission, it says it differently in any of the Gospels that you read. And so you can read other versions. And so if you read the book of Mark, for example, it says that we are to heal the sick and to raise the dead. Wow, are you kidding me? Heal the sick, raise the dead, preach the gospel and change the world. That is a huge task. Now, Jesus understood this. So what he said to his followers was, before you think about trying to just get out there and doing it on your own, boy, this is a good lesson for anyone that wants to just do it on their own without God's help. He says, don't even try. You will not make it and you will not do it. You need to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, He will fill you with power. Now, when it says to fill you with power, that word for power is dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite from. In other words, there will be such explosive power, spiritually speaking, that will become physical that you need to wait for His presence and His power because without Him, you can do nothing. And so the disciples, they waited for God to come in the form of the Holy Spirit. And so He did and He came and, and, he, and as He began to fill the disciples, He did something that we call He manifest His presence. The word manifest, it means to make something plain and to make it obvious. Let me give you a great example. If you were um, standing around, someone had fallen down dead and you said, get up and they did, that's a miracle, amen? And, and so that would be a manifestation of the presence of God because it would be impossible if you did it on your own. But when the Spirit of God manifests His presence, what was ordinarily impossible, impossible becomes completely probable because the God that we serve is able to do abundantly above what we think, hope, or imagine. He, he, he has power to bring things that look dead back to life. It's, that might be an encouraging word for someone here tonight. You just feel like something's dead in your life, and yet God has the power to resurrect it and bring it back to life. Now, if you read the book of Acts and you start to see what happened, the presence of, of the Spirit of God began to manifest Himself uh, through the disciples and crazy things started to happen. In fact, after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter went out the next day and he began to preach. Here's the crazy part. Peter began to preach in one language. And at the time, the group of people that he was preaching to were, had gathered together from different nations around uh, the earth and they all spoke different languages. As Peter began to preach, they could all hear him in their own language. And even though he was speaking one, the Holy Spirit was translating it sometime between when it left his mouth and it got to their ear and everyone was able to hear the gospel message to me. That makes me realize that God is so passionate about making sure that this message is heard by people. And so he translated it. It says that on that day, 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus and entered into the kingdom of God. And, and, and so you keep reading and you keep seeing more amazing stories. They began to heal the sick. They began to raise the dead. And all of these things you'll find in this book. Here is my point to you tonight. 
the kingdom of God has not been diluted of any of this power. None of it. The kingdom of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit is just as potent now as it was at the time when this was written. And I'll tell you something else. God is still in the business of redeeming and He hasn't stopped doing it. He's going to continue to redeem people and He's going to continue to redeem this world. In fact, He fills people with vision for it. You know, every kingdom vision is about redeeming something. Did you know that? If you feel like you have a vision from God, just tell me what it's redeeming. What is God wanting to redeem? What does that even mean? Well, the word redeem, it means to restore something to its originally intended and created purpose. People are so good at getting off track with what God wants to do with their life. Sometimes it's our fault and sometimes it's by no fault of our own. In fact, if you look back through time and history, you would read a story about when the, uh, God's people, the Hebrews, there were slaves in Egypt. And when you're in slavery, you can't get out of it. I'm sure if they could have, they would have, but they couldn't, so they're trapped. What did God say? He said, I will come and I will redeem you. So you are slaves now, but I call you my sons and I'm gonna lead you out of slavery so you can be who I've called and created you to be. Isn't that an awesome story? Oh, isn't that an awesome story? Just want to make sure you're listening tonight, Bright Church. And so here's the thing, even though that's a cool story, did you know that people are still living in slavery today? And in fact, it's not, it's not that obvious either because there's so many people that are in slavery, but you don't see it. In fact, the Bible says that which overcomes a person, whatever overcomes a person, it is to that thing that they are enslaved by. We live in a world where people are completely enslaved by this thing that we call sin. And sin is not just some moral failure that you've done. You know, sin is, is to actually do something different to what God's called you to do. It means to miss the mark in terms of your design and intention. God's created you for a purpose and you're getting off track because you're making decisions that are taking you further away from Him. And so people become slaves to this thing that they call sin. And you know, if we could have solved this problem on our own, we would have done it. But I told you before that slaves can't free themselves. And so what happened? Well, you already know the story because I shared it with you earlier is that Jesus was the one that stepped in. And this is what we call the gospel message. He stepped in and what did He do in that moment when He set people free from the power of sin? He redeemed them. He took them back and he said, okay, you were once slaves of sin, but now you're sons of the King Most High and I am gonna shape your life and you can do everything that I've called and created you to do. See, when God gives you a vision, He is redeeming something from the world and for His kingdom. That's how that works. He will redeem something from the world and it's always for His kingdom. So when someone says to me that they have a vision that they believe God has given to them, I might ask them, what is God redeeming in this process? What is He redeeming from the world and for His kingdom? You know, because vision looks different in different people's lives. So if you are a business person, you start a business and you say, I really believe God has called me to do this. Well, I guess there's a couple of ways that you could approach that. And if you say that God, you believe God has called you to be a wealthy businessman because you like to be a wealthy businessman, I suggest to you that that is not a commission from God. <laughs> Sounds nice. 
cute little story that you tell yourself to feel better about being rich and, and, and believing that it's from God. No, 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 no. If God has called you and gifted and graced you to be an incredible business person, what does God want to do with all of your success? What does He want to do maybe with the profits that you make from the success that He gives to you? Do you see how this works? There's got to be something kingdom orientated about a vision where God redeems something but uses it for His purpose and uses it for His glory. And when He does this, is He not changing the world by redeeming it? See, God is changing the world by redeeming it one act at a time. Every person's life that is redeemed is changing the world. In some sense, He is shifting and changing the world. Now, here's the part that's very important for you to understand tonight. Your life is not an accident. You were not here by chance. You may believe that the reason that you exist is because it's just because of biology. It's just because of the decisions that your parents made. But I tell you, that's not true. I, I don't actually believe that. In fact, I believe that God knew that you were going to exist in this exact moment, in this culture, in this city, at this exact time. And I believe that God has allotted our time periods to us. He knew that you would be here. I want you to think about your existence completely differently, maybe to a way that you've never thought about it before. You may think that your life is chance and random and maybe because you exist, God is taking advantage of your existence by saying, I give you a purpose. You're already here, so let's put you to work. Uh -uh -uh -uh. I believe what God is really doing is He's saying, I have planned time in history for you to exist in this exact moment and I have created you to make a difference in the world today. Suddenly everything shifts and changes in your life when you start to think about it like that. I want to read a scripture to you. It comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 13, it says this, Paul speaking, he says, but we will not boast beyond limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. Do you think it's interesting that God assigned them an area of influence? It's like the influence that they have comes via the grace of God, that they were given that influence by God to change the world. So when you read this, you say, well, well that's great for Paul, but this is what you need to understand. Everyone has been given influence. Everyone. Every single person in, in this room tonight has a degree of influence. And you might say, well, I don't know about that. I mean, my personality is such that I am introverted and I'm kind of quiet. And that has got absolutely nothing to do with anything. Because some of the most influential people that I've ever met are people that are quiet, that are introverted. I don't think it's got anything to do with it, to be honest. It doesn't matter who you are, you have influence. There's something about your life and who you are that can influence and impact the life of another. You may have only one friend in the world, but you'll have an influence on them. So you need to understand every single person has influence. It's a portion, a measure of grace given to you in order to change the world. And you've got to know that you've got it or you won't try to use it. So for us as a church, we have a vision. 
an out vision. This is, it's, we have a longer version. I'll give you the more portable version because it's a little bit easier for you to remember. But we are a passionate, we, we are a passionate. We are a passionate, life-giving and growing church that reach the lost and raise leaders to change the world. Do you know what leadership is? John Maxwell says that leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. Leaders change things. If leadership is only influence and you have influence, God is calling you in some sense to be a leader of people, to begin to impact them with who you are and what you know to be true about God. I believe that this is for everybody that's here tonight. There's not one person here tonight that this wouldn't apply to because as I say, we all have influence. Now, here's the thing. I believe that the world needs to be changed. Amen, you agree with me? Yeah, you agree with me? Okay, everyone that's a follower of Jesus believes and knows that the world needs to be changed. But here's what I've understood to be true. Not everyone is willing to lead that change. They know just not willing to be the ones to do it, not willing to be the ones to lead it. It's funny, there's a story about a woman called Catherine Genovese. Uh, she lived in New York City in a place called Queens. And in 1964, this is actually a very sad story, but it has an incredible point. In 1964, she was brutally murdered and tortured over a period of about 38 minutes of about 30 minutes. And, and, and so this was a horrible thing that happened and, and, it, and it almost was written off as just one more death that happened in New York City and almost to the point where everyone was going to ignore it. And a journalist was um, sitting down and, and meeting with the police commissioner and they actually crossed their wires and, and he began to tell her about this case. It was, and if it wasn't for that conversation, we would never know what we have learned today. And, and so he told her this story about this woman who was uh, uh, tortured for a period of about 30 minutes. Now, here is the really sad part. During that 30-minute period, she began to call out for help. And while she called out for help, people came and they, and they went to their windows. And because it's a highly densulated, a, a highly uh, populated um, uh, environment, they began to uh, look down on the alley below and see this crime taking place. In fact, they said 38 people came to the windows and, and, and flicked on the lights and began to look down at this woman that was crying out for help. When they would switch on the lights to see who was crying out for help, the attacker saw the light come on him and, and ran away and, and disappeared into the night and he waited, but there were no sirens. And since the police never came, he just went back to finish the job that he started. And as he began to attack her all over again, she cried out for help and said, someone please call me, someone please help. During the course of this conversation, the journalist said to the police commissioner, how could that have happened? And the police commissioner said, we don't know. We don't know how 38 people could hear a woman crying out for help while she's being tortured. We don't know how people could hear that and, and, and just ignore that. And so people began to speculate. Maybe the, the situation is that the city has grown cold. People no longer care about other people. Where is the love gone? You know, where is the love? Like people don't care anymore. It's just the way that life is. The world is cruel and it's harsh and people only care about themselves. Well, they began to investigate it. 
And, and, and so there were actually two research scientists that heard about this story and they wanted to investigate how it would be possible. So they did something. They, they interviewed the 38 witnesses that heard this crime but never reported it. And they discovered something that we might actually find shocking today. They discovered that each one of them were actually really good people. Actually really nice people. They were from good homes. They understood the difference between right and wrong. They understood that what was happening was horrible. In fact, as they interviewed these people, they were all shocked and horrified that a person would have to go through that. And they couldn't understand, well, if you thought it was horrible, why didn't you do something? And as they began to research more and more, two things became truly evident about the human psyche, about how we live and, and about how we think. The first thing they discovered was this, that the more bystanders there are, it reduces the personal responsibility of the individual. So when you're in a group that's, that's big enough, people say, that's all right. Someone will do something about that. Surely someone will act. Someone will see what's going on and someone will do something. There's enough people here to pick up the phone and make that phone call and make sure that that woman is safe. Surely someone will do it. The thing is that they all thought the same thing. And so nobody did it. So the first thing that they discovered is that personal responsibility is reduced when you're, when you're in a group of people that you think will take responsibility for the very thing that you're not taking responsibility for. It's like they're all thinking the same thing. That was the first thing they discovered. The second thing they discovered is that people require something that we call social proof. And they called it something different. They called it pluralistic, the pluralistic ignorance effect. And this is really what it means. When something is very wrong, and you know that it's wrong, but you look around to see what other people are doing, and if they are not responding to something that you know is wrong, there is something about that that tells you there actually is no emergency. There's no problem. This principle is so powerful that then even when you know something is wrong, you're confronted by something that's very wrong, but you see no one responding to it, you say there's nothing wrong with this. It has this way of overriding what you previously have been held, have held as truth. And so people thought, wow, could this really be true? I mean, do we really require all the people around us to respond in a certain way before we realize that someone should act, that someone should make a change, that someone should intervene? Wow. So you know what they did? They actually decided that they were going to stage emergencies to see how people would respond. And so the first emergency that they staged was a seizure. And they did it in a, in a park. And, and when one person would walk by, somebody would have a seizure, they'd, they'd have a fit. And as they're doing that, in, in, as one person was walking by, they said in 89% of the time, when there was one person present, they would help the person that's having a seizure or a fit. They would help them out. Then they did the exact same experiment and they waited for a group of people to walk by. Same idea, but now there's a group of people walking by and this person would have a seizure, they'd have a fit. And when the group of people were walking by, they kind of looked at each other 
realized that no one was really doing anything, which indicated to them that there was no actual emergency. And they recorded that only 35% of the time, a group of people would help the person that needed, needed their help. I thought, could this really be true? Is, is this how humanity works? Do we have to see somebody else respond to need before we decide that we should get involved too? And, and so they said, let's do it again. They actually did this experiment a number of times. They, they did one where they uh, began to pretend that there was a fire. So they had a door that was closed in a, in a, on a street and they started to push smoke out of that door and it started to billow out from underneath. And when a single person walked by, 79% of the time they saw the fire and they did something about it. And they did, repeated the same experiment and a group of people began to walk by. And this time they discovered that only 38% of the time when people were in a group that they do anything about the fire that they saw happening. I just began to think about this. Could this really be true? That even when we know something needs to be shifted or changed, that we won't do anything until we see somebody else act like it's an emergency? Start to think about the church. Start to think about how we act. I start to think about how we respond, how we behave. Can I tell you right now that there is a state of emergency and the smoke is billowing out the bottom of the door. There is a fire that's happening right now. And people are dying in their millions and going into a place called eternity without having a relationship with God. It's a state of emergency. And yet for some reason, it almost seems to be the case that when there's a group large enough that we think as individuals that someone else will take responsibility for that tragedy or someone else will take responsibility for that emergency. You know, I, I, I never understand it when people say things like, you know what, the church should do something about that. You are the church. It's you. When you say the church should do anything, you should rephrase it and say, we should really do something about that. And then if you want to get extreme, and I encourage you to, why don't you be the first one to actually do it? Why should you wait until someone else responds to something that you know needs to be fixed? We want to change the world, but we're waiting for someone else to do it before we're willing to get personally engaged by ourselves. Listen, you need to understand something. When God wanted to change the world, He sent you to do it. He sent you into the world to do it. And in fact, He has given you a grace to be able to do that. I just want to explain to you what I mean when I say it's your job to save the world. You say, that's a big job. I know, I already said that part. So what's your world? Well, your world is what you wake up to, where you work, and it's who you go home to. It's your sporting clubs, it's your social networks, and it's all of your personal relationships. That's your world. See, the world you're living in is the world that you're called to. You say, well, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. Tell me where you are on Monday nights. What are you doing at nine o'clock tomorrow morning? Wherever you are, that's your world. That's the one that you're called to. Which, which sporting club do you play for? Whoever they are, that's the world that you're called to. Where's your part-time job? That's the world that you're called to. 
Which uni do you go to? That's the world that you're called to. In fact, wherever you are, that's the world that you're called to. It's the world that you're living in. You don't need to travel to Japan to be a missionary. You could be a missionary to the culture that you're in. And in fact, if we get real about it, isn't that what the Great Commission is really all about? It's about preaching the good news to all creation so that everyone would have an opportunity to respond to this message. You know, the early church, they preached this message in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. It was concentric circles and they began to work their way out. So in a, in a certain sense, the apostles that did that work, they were pioneers. You know why? Because even though Jesus was the leader and pioneered the faith, he gave them a commission to take that message to a culture that's never heard it before. And so as they began to move out from Jerusalem, they start preaching this message called the gospel to people that have never heard it. And as they preach the gospel, God begins to redeem people. That's what happens when they give their lives to Him. And so He is redeeming the world one decision for Jesus at a time. He's rede- and, and, and when you do this, you've got to understand this is what actually begins to shift and change the world. See, your world's is new ground. They were pioneers because they preached to an audience that had never heard the gospel before. Your world is new ground. See, for years people have said, we live in a post-Christian era. People have heard the gospel, but they don't want it. Maybe that was true, but it's not anymore. That's not true anymore. We now presently live in a pre-Christian era because the generations that are growing up today may have heard of Jesus's name, but they know nothing of the gospel. They don't know anything about this message. When they think of God, they think of a God that is angry with them and frustrated with them. They have no idea that the God that we serve is one who gave his own life so that he could redeem them and have a relationship with them. That's good news. That's the message that needs to be preached to a world that has never heard that message before. And if you just take a short walk through your own world, you should be constantly confronted by situations that need to be changed. You should see them everywhere. You should see opportunity all around you and respond to it and begin to shift and change the world. Understand this church, you have been given time, talent and treasure as an act of grace by the God that loves you to enable you to do what would ordinarily be impossible. If you've given your life to Jesus and you are filled with the presence of God, you have everything you need to do exactly what we read in the Scriptures. And God is looking to this generation and looking to these people, you, myself, others that are followers of Him today, and we are called by God to respond to the situation that's happening all around us. What we need to do is stop giving guided tours of a world that's coming to an end and start to point people to the reality of something far better than this place. Because this, everything we see, it comes to an end. It's all going to be different. In the future, at some point, at some time, in some way, it's all coming to an end. And and let me explain what I mean by this. 
If all of the conversations that you ever have are only about this world, this place, how's the weather, how's your job, hope you're doing well, what movie do you want to see, right? You're just giving a guided tour of all the stuff that's available here. But that's not what you're called to do. You're called by God to point to the reality of something that will transition people out of this place and into eternity where they can spend time with their Father who's in heaven. That's the job of the Christian. That's the job of those that are followers of Jesus. This is what the early church did. You want to know what the secret to the early church was? You want to know what the secret to their success was? Number one, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Number two, they were obedient to everything that God asked them to do. And number three, they refused to allow fear to dictate and control the decisions that they make. It's kind of funny because I feel like we're living in a world right now where people are overcome by fear all of the time. They are ruled by anxiety. And and, and if you're ruled by that, in some way, there is something about that that is a little bit disabling to do all the things that God's called you to do because you're going to be so excessively worried about it that you're not going to be free to do everything that God wants you to do. Maybe you struggle with anxiety and that's the issue that you've got going on in your life. And if that's you, well, hey, don't feel judged. But can I tell you, it gets better than this. And God didn't call you or create you to live with these anxious thoughts and ideas. He called you to do something so much more. He's actually called you in so many ways to change the world. You see, when the Holy Spirit moved, the church grew and nothing could stop it. I submit to you tonight that that is just as true now as it was when this Scripture was written. It's just as true now as it was when it was written. So we look for reasons. Well, why aren't things happening the way that they're supposed to be happening? Why, why doesn't this happen? Why, why doesn't this happen? Why aren't churches, the, why, why aren't people cramming in to get in here to hear these words of life that could transform them, you know? Maybe, hey, maybe it's the devil, you know? It's the devil's fault. It's his responsibility, right? No, 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 no. Devil's got nothing to do with this. In fact, if you read the scriptures, you would find that he tried to persecute the early church to stop them from spreading the gospel. It just happens to be that when the church is persecuted, it grows and grows and grows. See, even when he tries, the, the more he tries to stop it, it's like the more it begins to spread. Our, our, our greatest enemy is not the devil stopping us from doing what we're supposed to be doing. That's not our enemy. Our enemy is outdated thinking in a contemporary culture that comes from a lack of identity. We just don't know who we are. It's funny how people form their identity. They actually attach it to stuff that they were never supposed to attach it to. And they say, hey, this is how I'm supposed to be. This is what church is supposed to look like. Did you you know that the word contemporary, that it means to exist at the same time? We need to be a church that exists in the same time as our culture and not be in love with the way church was done 30 years ago because we have all the nostalgia that came with doing church back then. That was great for 30 years ago, but it's not great for what we're trying to do today. And if we have our identity fixed in Christ, it doesn't matter what the thing looks like as long as the gospel is preached and the Word of God remains our conviction. It's gonna look different in the time to come. 30 years from now, the church will look different than it does right now. But if we know who we are and we know what our message is, that's going to be okay. We have to be okay with things shifting and and, and changing to meet the culture that we're living in. 
You know, all around the place, churches are closing their doors. And I'm telling you right now, they're not closing their doors because they have misunderstood the Gospel. They're closing their doors because they've misunderstood how to connect with a culture that they live in. And so what do we got to do? Well, we're going to do church in any way that we can and refuse to compromise on what the Word of God says. We're still going to hold true to the convictions and the mission. The mission remains the same. Come on. They wanted to see people saved, free, equipped and sent in Jesus' Name back then. And we're still going to do it today. But over time, those things are going to shift and change. And that's going to be okay. Because we're desperate to reach people. Our enemy, Our enemy is not... A lack of focus. Sorry, our enemy is a lack of focus. Our enemy is a lack of vision. Our enemy is a lack of involvement. It seems to be the case today. The churches are expending a lot of energy trying to convince the Christians that church is worth coming to every week. You know, I, I was reading recently something that said most people go to church one in four weeks and it shocked me. I think I see the problem. The problem is we have a lack of focus. We don't understand what we're really doing here. You know, our problem is that we're looking for easy living in a world that's full of desperation. It's about being comfortable and and conforming to what the world says we should do with our faith. You know, like they'll say things to us like, your faith should be private. And if you believe that, what a joke. What a joke. Anybody that says faith is supposed to be private fundamentally misunderstands the entire purpose of the Bible. Have you read the Great Commission? Do you not know what it's about? The Great Commission is about having nothing private. It's about, I quote, preach the good news to all creation. Anyone that's in earshot, give them this message, this life-changing, outrageously positive and encouraging message. And don't allow anyone to tell you that this thing needs to be private because a hundred years from now, they're going to thank you that you had the guts to go against what your culture said. And they're going to thank you that you had the guts to preach to them a message that sees them walk into eternity. You know, if we live, we're looking for easy living. We're trying to be comfortable we think that our faith is, is, is private. Can I tell you, that kind of thinking, that kind of living, it makes Jesus sick. In fact, I'll tell you the truth right now. It makes Him want to vomit. Because He literally said it. He said it to a church that was so comfortable in who they were. They were gifted. They had money. They had resource. They had it all. But they just didn't care about this message called the Gospel. And He says, you know what? This makes me sick. He says, literally, I want to spew you out of my mouth. I mean, no one is more committed to the gospel than Jesus. Can I remind you that he believes in this message so much that he was willing to die on the cross and to give his own life so that people could hear this. And imagine this, the Saviour that you hold so dearly gave his life for this cause and not so that you could be comfortable, but so you could get this message to the people that is just as lost now as you once were and to receive that, to be the recipient of incredible grace and not to pass it on. Wow, really? He says, I saved you for more than this. I've created you for more than this. I've created you to begin to shift and change the world. Get a better vision for why I've created you. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 29 and verse 18, it says that without prophetic revelation, people cast off restraint or without prophetic vision, people cast off restraint. That word for vision is redemptive revelation. 
Revelation is when something is revealed to us. And what people need today in our culture is they need it to be revealed to them the redeeming work of God. The fact that He's not there to judge, the fact that He's not there to hate on people, the fact that He's not always angry and brooding and, 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 and frustrated and mad. That's, that's not the story of the Gospel at all. In fact, the story of the Gospel is that He loved you so much that He was willing to give His life for you. There is something redeeming about that that we're supposed to give to a world that needs to hear it. I think you two said it best when they said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, you know? Imagine that, people that are so outrageously successful, that are living the life that many people could only dream of. They have everything and yet they still haven't found what they're looking for. We live in a world that's still looking for something that's greater. You know what? I think that's because there's something inside of people that knows that this can't be it. We don't want to allow people to just settle for that life. You know, we should be pointing people to something more. This world needs to be changed. And you and I, we are called by God to first see the change, to be the change, and to lead the change. So I thought so much about this and I wanted to just write something that I thought would be so helpful for us today that would just really give us a great idea about where God was leading us next year in 2020. And I, I wanna read that to you tonight. That's good, you're building the tension. That's really good. Thank you guys. Our world is desperate for change and it needs the love of Jesus. Our world is what we wake up to, where we work and who we go home to. Our world is found in our sports clubs, friendship groups and social networks. We were not called by God into comfort or conformity to sit back and passively watch the world turn. We are called, gifted and graced by God to influence our world and make it better. His kingdom will not disappear, be diluted in its power or pulled back from its influence. And although it refuses to be reigned in, it is restricted by the faith of His followers. Heaven is on our side. God is in our hearts. His Spirit is speaking, leading and guiding us. We have been given insight to see what is and reshape what could be through the devotion of our time, the use of our talents and the generosity of our treasure. The Gospel has transformed us so that we can run our race unrestricted by the power of sin and darkness. Our vision is clear. Our path is set to see the change, to be the change and to lead the change. And that is why in 2020, our theme for the year is lead the change because that is everything that God has called us to do. Don't wait for someone else to act on what you know is important. Let's not be the kind of people that are waiting till someone else indicates to us that there is a need. We have been called, gifted, graced by God, by the use of our time, talents and treasure. We can actually change the world. And, and, and this is what I honestly believe to be true. That if we do this, that if we lead the change, that if we're the ones to speak up, that if we're the ones to break new ground and new territory and introduce our friends to this redemptive God that we love and serve, we'll start to see them begin to trickle in one by one. I'll tell you right now, Bright Church, I don't think I've ever said that this church is all about being a church of thousands. No, no, no. But I do say all the time, we wanna save everyone, everyone. The thing is, if we save every one, the rest of it will take care of itself. 
what, what we wanna see is everyone we know understand this message. What we wanna see is every single person that's a follower of Jesus understand that this is what we've been called to do. This is what we've been gifted and graced to do. And as we preach the good news to all creation, you begin to watch as this place fills up multiple times on Sunday and people begin to declare that Jesus is Lord of their lives. And I'll tell you right now, this is what God is asking you to do. You may have never identified yourself as a leader, but I still tell you that God has given you influence and He wants you to use it to influence the world around you and draw them in to God. The reason we're doing a leadership internship is because we believe that leaders change stuff. If leadership is simply influence, nothing more and nothing less than really it's an influence internship. We want the people that we raise up to influence the world around them. That's why we build leaders. That's why we wanna raise them up. I'll tell you right now, we need leaders in every single area and facet of the world that we live in. We need business people that are, that are leaders and have a passionate relationship with God. We, we need people that are politicians. We need teachers. We, we need students. We need primary school students. We need everyone that we have to be able to understand this and begin to lead the change in the world that we live in. And if we do this, I'll tell you right now, we're, We'll easily fill this church up so many times. We're just gonna have to get something bigger. And that is what we're doing next year. We, are in the, we have been in the backgrounds in the process of working towards buying a property, something bigger than this. Because I tell you right now, in the years to come, we'll outgrow this. We will never close the doors to people. I'll tell you right now, here's a bit of motivation for you. I will do as many services as we can fill. It's, so it's easier if we can just seat more people, amen? So next year, we're gonna talk to you about how this is all gonna happen. And I'm, I'm just as excited about the strategy as I am about the idea of getting something new. But we, we believe that God is gonna give us a new space. We believe that God's gonna give us something fresh. In 2015, God said to me, stretch out the curtains of your habitation. It was a clear word that He gave to me. And I always believe that God says to you, I want you to stretch out the curtain of your habitation and you do that before you can fill it. And so for us, we're gonna tell you more about this in 2020, but we believe that God is gonna, in the years to come, lead us, but we're gonna start this thing next year. And we're gonna tell you all about that. We're gonna do a series in the month of February called Lead the Change. It's gonna be all about this. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I believe right now that your life will be different after that series. Don't miss one. I think you're gonna influence the world that surrounds you. If you come and you listen and you do the kind of things that God puts on your heart out of that space, out of that message, I really believe that you're gonna change the world. I wanna pray for you guys tonight. Would you stand to your feet? Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.